Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Greg Dacker, shall we? Oxford Economics Chief, U.S. Economist. He joins us in the studio in our interactive broker studios. Greg, great to catch up with you. Let's just talk about the shape of that yield curve. What's the signal that comes from that for you right now? Well, I think what we're seeing is that uh, the expectations for growth in the U.S. are of, of more moderate growth going forward. Uh, and the 10-year yield is reflecting both uh, those expectations of more moderate growth as well as more moderate inflation going forward. Um, and with the Fed, Fed now on hold, we believe the Fed has actually reached its terminal uh, policy rate for this cycle. Um, we don't really see much momentum upward for, for yields going forward. So I think we're going to see this flatter curve for the foreseeable future. There's always that question of, does that signal recession? I think there's a possibility that that signals a recession. We actually think there won't be a recession, but we're seeing more and more signals, including from policymakers, that the risks are really tilted to the downside. And everybody's talking about those risks, which leads to recession bias. Okay, normally people get more optimistic about inflation and growth uh, when the Fed is more dovish. Right. Because basically people say the Fed's going to allow growth to accelerate, allow inflation to run hot. Right now, we are not seeing that based on the shape of the yield curve, based on the tepid response toward risk assets. Does that mean to you that the Fed is out of ammunition when it comes to stimulating the economy during this round, uh, during this credit cycle? Uh, and that, that really, frankly, they cannot help uh, prolong this cycle. I don't necessarily think that they're out of ammunition. Um, I think, by the way, that uh, by not raising rates this year, they're actually providing somewhat of a, a greater growth buffer for 2020. Um, we've calculated that the delta between them raising rates three times this year or not raising rates at all this year is about 0.5 percentage points of GDP growth. So they're actually providing an ex-ante buffer in terms of growth. They have the most ammunition amongst all central banks around the world, having already raised rates and having started, um, although they're going to taper that process, but have it started to reduce the size of their balance sheet. So they have a little bit more ammunition, but really the, the game in town in the next recession, in the next downturn, is not going to be central banks. It's going to be all on fiscal policy. And will they have the capacity to do fiscal policy here in the United States? I think we have the capacity. The capacity is not really an issue in the United States, especially when you have the dollar as your, your main currency yeah. reserve uh, globally. Wait, are you um, basically supporting MMT here? I, I don't know that uh, we support or, or do not support MMT. I think it's she's, always she's a question of you up, what right. is MMT. MMT. Uh, but I think we do have some fiscal space. Um, I think Blanchard's argument that interest rates being low is a great opportunity for us to uh, increase government spending for productive reasons. That, I think, is the main argument he's that we have MMT. to follow. He's basically saying I, I you think know, more what, spending. I think what he's it. saying is that the Treasury market <laughs> will behave like a developed market, sovereign bond market in the next downturn, i.e. yields will go lower if growth concerns roll off a cliff, i.e. giving you the capacity to do some kind of fiscal stimulus. There will be some people listening thinking, hang on a minute, this economy is still okay. A recession isn't immediately around the corner. So let's take stock of where we are. In Europe, we've just had some ugly PMI data. The Eurozone manufacturing number coming in at 47.6 for March. It's terrible. The estimate was 49.5. The previous read was 49.3. Is there any reason to believe this really, really dreadful soft patch in Europe over the last six months, call it nine months, bleeds into the United States in a more material way? 
Yeah, I mean, I think external headwinds are important, and they are one of the concerns that the Fed has. Um, the, this environment where global growth has slowed from 3% 18 months ago uh, to about 2.6% in, in our latest forecast is something that the Fed is quite concerned about. But we have to remember that U.S. fundamentals remain quite solid. Despite all this talk of a downturn and imminent recession, the U.S. economy still has solid fundamentals. The labor market is the strongest we've ever seen. The economy is about to reach the longest expansion it's seen um, in, in, in over 70 years. So we are in this very still positive market where we still have solid growth momentum elevated confidence, I think, yes, growth will slow, perhaps very rapidly from 3% to 2% over the course of this year, but we shouldn't be necessarily talking about a recession in this type of environment. There is a big question, and it's the inflation question, yes. because people really don't understand uh, why inflation hasn't picked up more, given how long this recovery has been. Where do you see that and, and sort of the pressures of rising wages and corporate profitability and their ability to pass along costs? What are you expecting in, in terms of inflation? I think there are, there are a few questions in, in that question to unbundle. First is this uh -oh. relationship, this trade-off between unemployment and wage growth. And we see that trade-off still happening. The Phillips curve is still alive. We're still seeing wage growth accelerate as labor market slack diminishes. Um, whether that is passed on to inflation is the big question. And I think we're seeing less of that pass through to inflation in large part because of increasingly anchored inflation expectations. The trade-off between the two has essentially halved over the last 20 years compared to the 20 years prior to that. So we're not seeing much pass through. And actually, our view is that inflation is really not going to break to the upside in any significant way. And that's, I think, a big reason why the Fed is reconsidering its strategic framework and yeah. thinking about catch-up models, average inflation, price level targeting, those are all things that the Fed is considering right now. Hey, Greg, great to catch up with you. Really interesting morning to catch up with you as well. Greg Dacko there, the Oxford Economics Chief, U.S. Economist. I want to get you up to speed on the Brexit news. Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the UK, planning to hold a third vote on her Brexit deal next week after the European Union essentially put off the threat of the UK crashing out of the block next Friday by giving the British another week or two to figure out what exactly to do. The EU essentially telling the Prime Minister that if she can't get a Brexit deal ratified next week, she'll have until April 12th to decide whether to leave without an agreement or request a much longer extension. On the phone, I'm really pleased to say, taking the time out of what I'm sure is a busy morning to speak to us, is Anthony Philipson, the British Consul General for the United States. Anthony, always great to get your thoughts on this situation. So talk to me about what your message is today to anyone who's essentially dealing with the United Kingdom, whether it's from a trade perspective, from a business perspective. What's your message for them today? Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. It's always great to be on your show. Um, I think the key message that came out of yesterday is the Prime Minister's and the government's commitment to delivering on the result of the referendum and doing so in an orderly way that provides uh, both the future perspective and a future relationship with the EU and the time for people to prepare. We are obviously very conscious that people, you know, we're very close to the 29th of March, as, as you say, next Friday. Um, and the agreement with the EU uh, last night in Brussels uh, provides for uh, either a technical extension, if Parliament agrees uh, the withdrawal agreement next week, or, as you say, there is then a new sort of milestone of the 12th of April, by which time we either need to come forward with an alternative plan, including the crucial question of whether 
to run in, uh, candidates in the European elections in May, and the Prime Minister has made clear uh, that she thinks that would be the wrong thing to do, given that the British people voted almost three years ago to leave the EU. So I think the key message is that we're still determined to deliver on the result of the referendum, to do so in a smooth and orderly way, and to give business time to prepare as necessary. Anthony, will Parliament hold a third vote next week? Is that clear to you whether that will actually happen? So the Prime Minister um, will be talking to colleagues today, I'm sure. She said in her statement in Brussels uh, last night that she was committed to uh, bringing this back to the Commons next week. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a fast-moving issue. I think we need to wait and see exactly how she plans to do that. What gives you confidence that a third vote will actually get some consensus, given some of the turmoil that we've seen in Parliament? I think the, the key point the Prime Minister keeps making is that Parliament needs to agree what it wants to do. It has had a series of votes uh, that have obviously been very significant in terms of uh, expressing the will of the House on various issues. Um, but at the minute, uh, the, the, the important thing is to pass this agreement or to decide to do something else. So uh, the key debate, I think, next week will focus on uh, that the agreement that the Prime Minister has done with the EU. Um, and that's her, prim- that's her primary focus for now. If they don't agree that, then the, the Commons will need to agree something else. We can't just keep la- letting it slip down the road. Anthony, can you guarantee the trade community that there won't be a hard Brexit? Um, uh, no, I don't think I can, if I can just be very honest. Uh, I can certainly guarantee that the Prime Minister's determination is not to, 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 to carry out this process in a way that creates needless uncertainty. And that's why the focus is still on the withdrawal agreement, the implementation period that's built into that, uh, that gives a period of uh, transition and, uh, and continuity, uh, all within a context of agreeing a new future relationship with the EU uh, that allows us to continue a close economic relationship with them at the same time as developing our, our trade policy with the rest of the world. Uh, that remains uh, her, her, her view about the best way forward and the best way to deliver on the referendum result. It must be a tough job to speak with, uh, with trade partners and try to uh, massage the situation at a time of great uncertainty. How do you do it? <laughs> I think we focus on two things. One is uh, trying to explain to them uh, what is happening and, and what the implications are. Uh, we also do uh, try to keep our eyes on a, a slightly broader perspective about the, uh, the continuing opportunities of an economic partnership with the UK, the continuing investment opportunities uh, that the UK economy offers uh, in a whole host of uh, sectors. And obviously, I, I continue to feel there is no more important partnership uh, than we have with uh, with North America and with um, with the US and Canada. Um, we do uh, try, as I say, and keep our eyes focused on that forward agenda. We're, for example, in a couple of weeks here in New York, we're doing a big event uh, around that we call Designing Our Future that is trying to build the partnerships with the business community, the academic community, uh, building on our industrial strategy, but also a lot of what's going on here. So we try to offer assurance and explanation where we can at the same time as talking about future opportunity. Anthony, always great to get your insight. I know this morning will be incredibly busy for you, so we appreciate your time here on Bloomberg Radio. Anthony Phillipson there, the British Consul General for the United States.
We have a unicorn in studio right now, a unicorn who also happens to be eight months pregnant uh, with her second child. We're talking with Rent the Runway co-founder and chief executive officer Jennifer Hyman joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. I want to just first start by congratulating you because uh, you did just reach this $1 billion valuation status, making you a unicorn. Congratulations. Thank you. We are so proud and it's been a huge amount of teamwork over the last 10 years to get us here. So can you give us a sense of where the biggest business is that you do and, and how you've expanded it? In other words, which locations uh, around the world that really uh, are driving the growth here? Well, our business is primarily, well, our business is based in the United States right now. The majority of our revenue comes from a subscription to fashion called Rent the Runway Unlimited that women are using to get dressed in their daily lives. In fact, they're using it 120 days of the year as a substitution for the closet that's in their bedroom. So they're renting all forms of apparel from us, everything from a pair of pants, jeans, coats, blouses, dresses, vacation wear, maternity wear, literally everything that you can think of on rotation. How long do they usually borrow each item of clothing for? So you pay a monthly fee and receive four items and you can swap them at your leisure, at your discretion. So um, the customer is really in control. It's this new form of dynamic ownership where she's able to decide how long she actually needs each item for. Can you talk about the value proposition from your perspective, right? Because the fixed costs yeah. have to do with cleaning. Uh, it, what happens if somebody does a little too much wear and tear on something or there's a stain or something like that, right? And acquiring the clothes. Well, let's actually talk about the value proposition first to the customer because the customer in America right now, on average, is spending $3,300 a year on apparel and five to $700 a year on dry cleaning. Whether they care about fashion or not, you are down $4,000 a year. And that doesn't actually vary that much based on household income. So even at lower household incomes, this is still this fixed expense that people have because they work and they need to show up at work looking professional. So now for $160 a month, so less than 50% of what you would have spent on fashion for the year, you're getting unlimited choice of millions of items, you're getting $40,000 worth of value in terms of the, the cost of the product that you're getting, free dry cleaning, you're saving time, and it's much more sustainable. So you don't have that waste of the 80% of your closet that's not regularly used. From our standpoint, um, in terms of how we optimize our own costs and profitability, we have known that this company is primarily about logistics and technology from the very beginning. So we vertically integrated the company 10 years ago. We've built out proprietary reverse logistics technology, including the largest dry cleaning operation in the world. So we are real experts in how to restore clothing to perfect condition and utilize it multiple times throughout its life. So when you're raising money, which you just did, uh, you just had a, a fresh capital raise of $125 million from investors, co-led by Franklin Templeton and Bain Capital. Uh, other investors have included T. Rowe Price, Hamilton Lane Advisors. What are their main concerns at a time uh, investing in retail in 2019 in an era of Amazon 
and uh, a steeply competitive environment. Yeah, I think the investor set thinks more um, towards the sharing economy as it relates to a rent the runway comp than they think about retail. Where if That's you really interesting. look at millennials and Generation Z, dynamic ownership has already overtaken our lives when it comes to our digital, our digital footprint. Music, entertainment, books, everything that we want is in the cloud. And Rent the Runway is providing those same options for the physical world. You know, our goal is to become the Amazon Prime of rental and make it fiscally irresponsible for anyone to not have a subscription to Rent the Runway. What kind of bargaining power do you have when it comes to purchasing the clothes? So, of course, the company is growing rapidly. So the amount that we purchase from designers has gone up um, a lot every year, and that gives us increased purchasing power. But I think what's more exciting to the designer brands that we work with is the data that we're providing them and the millions of new customers that we're able to introduce to their brands for the very first time. Remember that for these designers, their primary distribution channels in the past have been via department stores, and those department stores are catering to a woman who is above the age of 50. Whereas most of the Rent the Runway customers, you know, 99% of Rent the Runway customers are below the age of 50. In fact, our median age is 29. So we're introducing 30 years worth of women to these brands for the first time and developing that brand affinity early in their lives. What kind of data is helpful in determining this? I mean, is it basically what kinds of clothes uh, somebody has liked in the past? You know, that's data that almost everyone can get. Like, you can look at sell-through rate, you can look at preferences online and figure out what people like. But what was missing from the retail industry is what happens after someone purchases the product? What happens, do they actually wear it? How often do they wear it? Do they like how it looks on them? How often? what quality is that item in and how many times can it be used over its lifetime before it falls apart? So we have this precious source of data that we call our post-order data of what happens once it is at home in a customer's closet. Because a lot of brands have um, high sell-through rates but very low loyalty rates and they have no idea why the customer is not coming back to them. And we're able to solve that for them and let them know, is it because of the item quality? Is it because of fit? Is it because you know it just went out of style, et cetera? So you know if somebody basically, uh, for all intents and purposes, buys something and stick it on the shelf with a tag still on it, not, don't never wear it again versus- Yeah, uh, versus in order really to receive it. the next items in our unlimited subscription, you have to tell us about the items you just wore. So real quick, I'm just wondering, uh, where do you see the biggest expansion opportunities going forward? I think that we've just scratched the surface of women putting their closets in the cloud in the United States. You know, we really think the total addressable market here is every woman. We've already seen in the subscribers we have ex incredible diversity, both in household income, geography. Our subscribers already comprise 76% of all zip codes across the US. We have 25% um, of our subscribers have household incomes below $65,000 a year. 25% have household incomes above $200,000 a year. So very diverse group of people. We really want to proliferate this behavior of dynamic ownership because we think that the customer gets a lot more value, saves time, feels incredible every day and it is far more sustainable.
Jennifer Hyman, thank you so much uh, for joining us here, and congratulations on reaching unicorn status and your impending uh, delivery. Jennifer, thank ha- Jennifer you. Hyman, thank uh, you. Rent the Runway Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder. Really interesting to think about the sharing economy. Uh, putting your closet in the cloud certainly would be much more space efficient in a place like New York City. Uh, The news out of Washington continues uh, unabated, as it has been for some time. And at this time, uh, on Fridays of every week, we have uh, our friend Margaret Brennan to help us break it down. Margaret Brennan, of course, is a host of CBS's Face the Nation, uh, which you can see uh, every Sunday on CBS and on Bloomberg. Uh, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to start off by um, giving us a sense of where you think the Mueller investigation is. We've been waiting for the report for, it seems like, several weeks now. Can you give us the latest? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, every Friday, I think all reporters across the country hold their breath and wait. Uh, We don't necessarily have any um, indication it'll be this Friday, but we do know uh, that the special counsel's office has been shrinking. A number of the investigators who have been on staff are slowly leaving as their portions of this probe wrap up. So that indicates they are getting closer to the end. Uh, But as to the official day that the report will be finalized and quietly transmitted to the Department of Justice, we are just waiting to see. Um, Of course, the bigger question then is what happens next? It'll be up to the attorney general to make a decision to act on the Mueller report if there's anything in it that warrants action. Um, And it'll also be up to him in many ways to decide what becomes public. Uh, The president just yesterday Uh, said that he does think portions of it should be public, which is a reversal from his prior position, which is uh, that it would be a call for the attorney general. Margaret, I am interested in how the economic backdrop fits into the ongoing political drama, uh, in particular, the U.S.-China trade discussions, because President Trump has come out recently and cast a little bit of cold water on expectations that a deal will go through easily ahead of uh, the meeting with Xi Jinping. Can you give us a sense of what you're looking for there? Well, we know U.S. negotiators, it was very deliberately leaked, um, are headed to Beijing in the following days. Uh, That includes the Secretary of the Treasury and uh, the U.S. trade negotiator, Robert Lighthizer. So there is um, a desire by the Trump administration to continue to uh, hold out hopes that they get to the point that there is a deal brokered between the U.S. and and China in the near term. The president continues speaking as if it is um, very much uh, within grasp. But of course, what we hear details about are the things that have to do with trade of goods, like buying more soybeans, doing things that will have certainly political resonance for supporters of the president who have been hurt directly by tariffs, some of the farmers in the heartland of this country. We're hearing a lot less detail about the things that were at the heart of this dispute in terms of the really tough reforms that Uh, The administration says China has to undertake in terms of its business practices, in terms of how it handles uh, private investment. We we just don't know if they are there yet at what the Trump administration says are their goals out of this. Uh, But I would uh, expect in the coming weeks to continue to hear some um, talking up of the possibility, the practicality we just don't have a lot of visibility into. So, Margaret, we're getting uh, closer and closer to 2020. The uh, Democratic field of potential presidential candidates uh, continues to grow. Uh, 
has anybody, you know, I, I guess let's start with Joe Biden. Where do you think he is? I know there's been some concern about fundraising. Um, do you think he is really going to go all in here? Well, you know, everyone has been waiting for him to make it official. As one Democratic fundraiser said to me, it's like waiting for Godot. But uh, one, but this particular Democrat does know, um, as do other Democratic sources who have been speaking to CBS News, uh, that the vice president is very much getting ready to pull the trigger, doing some work in terms of alerting fundraisers that he's getting into the game. Um, you know, one of the concerns uh, among some Democrats has been the big money donors have been waiting. Some felt burned after 2016 that they went all in on the candidate and obviously didn't get the return on that investment, so to speak, that they had hoped for. Uh, and that at this point, a lot of the fundraising are smaller dollar um, more activist types uh, who are donating to campaigns. And some of that's reflected in what you're hearing with a more progressive sort of policy line from Democrats responding to what they're hearing from uh, or, or activists and those donating early on. The big money is kind of waiting to see who pulls out in a really crowded field. And if the vice president jumps in, he's already got the name recognition, so he doesn't need to take a lot of time um, to, to do that slow build uh, across the country. He, he goes in uh, as someone who's run at least twice before for president and as a vice president and been in the Senate for so long, people know who he is. So, uh, Margaret, who are your guests this weekend? Well, uh, we are still working on the lineup, but at this point, um, we have two uh, big points of discussion. One is with Hakeem Jeffries, one of the top Democrats in the House, part of leadership there, who uh, has been very frustrated and vocal in recent days that the White House isn't turning over documents that they've requested regarding a number of different lines of inquiry, including this latest um, a revelation from House oversight that Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, was using private communication, text, email, messaging apps, WhatsApp uh, for official government business. Sound familiar? Uh, that was the Hillary Clinton uh, criticism launched by President Trump during the 2016 campaign. We'll also uh, have on the show retired Marine General um, uh, John Allen, who ran the campaign against ISIS previously. And he'll talk to us about what was actually accomplished on the battlefield in Syria and Iraq. Margaret Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we look forward to that. You can hear Margaret Brennan this weekend on Bloomberg Radio. Listen to Face the Nation Sunday at 2 p.m. in New York, Washington, D.C., and now Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport. That's Face the Nation uh, this Sunday at 2 on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.